Let me pray for God's help. I really need it. God, I, uh, oh, I just confess that I feel attacked and like um, uh, I hear I'm not worthy to preach this message. And, um, but I am like you have, you have called me and you have made me worthy and you have made us worthy of hearing good news. Those who are in Christ. And so it's just a lie when Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within. Upward we look and see you there. You have made an end to all our sins. So we stand in Christ's blood and proclaim and rejoice in who you are and what you have done. Amen. Okay, Isaiah 59. This sounded a little gloomy compared to the last sections of Isaiah that we've been studying. The book of Isaiah goes kind of back and forth and intermingles judgment and grace, bad news and good news. And earlier, if you remember last year, Isaiah, the front end was a lot of judgment with sprinkles of grace. And the, the end of the book is kind of the opposite. There's a lot of grace and good news with sprinkles of judgment. And um, so this chapter is like that, right? But there's good news here too. I think they're both in here. So we're going to talk about the gospel, Right? And real quickly, what is that? There's different ways to say it today. Jesus died for our sins. He made an end to all our sins, all of them, yesterday, today, and forever. He has made an end to them. That's incredible. Like, like even the sin in your heart, like right now, he has made an end of it. It doesn't define you. It doesn't capture you, it doesn't command you, it doesn't own you. That's good news, okay? We're going to break down that good news into four categories, Lord willing, here. Sin, separation, substitution, security. I learned that in seminary, yeah? Four S's. It's here. Let's talk about sin. The text talks about sin. Uh, there's a lot in there. I'm just going to highlight a couple of these. Verse 3, God is describing Israel at that time. And as we'll see here in a moment, it's really a description of humanity. Your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. Verse 4, no one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. So he's talking about individuals and society. He's talking about the structures of society. Listen to how he describes sin in verse 5. They hatch adder's eggs. It's a snake. A viper. What does that mean? It means that the things that we are conceiving lead to destruction and death. These eggs, right? Eggs are supposed to be nutritious and food. But the things that we are laying before one another and before society, it says this, he who eats their eggs dies. And from one that is crushed, the egg that is crushed, a viper is hatched. They weave the spider's web. What does that do? It traps people. Sin is just painted in really, really dark terms. Verse 7 continues, their feet run to evil. Some of this language is picked up in Romans 3. Paul's quoting this when he's talking about the sin of all humanity. This isn't just Israel. Their feet run to evil. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Now, I'm going to come back to this a little bit, but there's this idea that's, that's, where, that's easy. We, we're swift to that. 
right? Humanity in in and of ourselves, we're not swift to righteousness. We're not swift to confession. We're not swift to building one another up. We're not swift to repentance. We're swift to evil. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highway. So now, this has obviously gone pretty bad here. He's describing societal fallout, right? That sin is in every society because people are in society. And sin is in every person. And it can vary. Every society exists on a spectrum. That sin can perpetuate itself through society to the point where it collapses. And that's what's happening here. It's kind of going back to this idea of Israel being exiled and their society coming to a collapse. Why? Because sin was so rampant, God handed them over that the entire society fell, right? Because sin has self-destructive forces. You can see this in individuals, right? If you've seen or maybe you've been in these situations where you are given over to drug addiction, let's use that as an example. It has a self-destructive force in it. It starts to trickle down into other things, right? It affects your finances. It affects your health. It affects your relationships, right? These things, all of our lives are woven together in sin in the human heart and left unrestrained by God can lead to the entire collapse of an entire society. America is on that spectrum somewhere. Every nation has sin. America is not God's country. America is a nation here, and it has sin. It has not been given over yet to complete collapse. Maybe it will. When truth is not upheld in the public square, when things like gender and sexuality and family structure are attacked, it will not hold. Now, God can restrain and reverse that, and, and we'll see. The point is this. Sin is destructive to the point that at some point there's not just injustices, but the entire fabric of society unravels. Now, we can look at this, and I think the risk is that we can right, make, oh, Israel was so fallen, or nations are so fallen. And yes, that's true. But the reason is, it's because, like I said, they're filled with people. So Paul in Romans 3, picking up on a lot of these verses, says this, right? We have charged that both Jews and Greeks, based by that he means everybody, Jews and non-Jews, everybody, every single living human on the earth are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, no, not even one. We are born captive to sin and we are dull to it. We are dull to it. One of, my, one of the observations I made over, over the years just living life in, in Christian circles is sometimes we will give ourselves over to ungodly entertainment. Right? We'll watch a show or a movie or something that's really just ungodly. It's about gossip and slander and murder and all these things. But then suddenly someone drops an F-bomb And we are offended. (laughs) You're not offended. It's just not true. Like we, we do that because we have belittled sin. We have grown dull to it. 
We have ignored its presence in our life, and yet we're given over to gossip. We're given over to slander. We're given over to unforgiveness. We're given over to excess. We're given over to greed. We're given over to selfishness. But God forbid someone would swear. We are, there's a dullness. And there's moments when God shows us, the revelation comes and we see the ugliness of sin, but to a great extent, we're just kind of friends with it. It's our partner. It's how we live. It's what we do. And we are bent toward denying sin. Our feet are swift to deny it. Right? They're slow to confess. I've had this thought this morning, like, why is there so little confession on the news? There's no actual reason that couldn't be the case. Why is the news just accusation? Everyone's accusing everyone else. Why is there so little confession? CEOs and doctors and neighbors and farmers just coming out and going, oh, here's the revelation. Our feet are slow to do that. We are quick to confess. We the sin is here, its effects are in our lives, but we are dull to it and we want to deny it. My wife tells a story of when she was a, a little girl. I don't know how old she was, maybe under 10. She cut her hair, like half of it, right, on her own. Just had long hair and just went. <laughs> and, um, and then, you know, her mom found the scissors in the hair and lined up all the kids. Who did this? And Aubrey's there like, let's write this down. Wasn't me. Get the picture? Like it's, it's stunningly obvious to God. And at times we kind of know, but we, what we do is we suppress that. That's what she was doing in that moment. Yeah, I'm just going to deny reality and maybe it'll work. Doesn't work doesn't work there's sin the sin leads to separation verse 2 your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you now what does that mean to be separated from God it doesn't mean geographic because God is everywhere he's everywhere it means loss of fellowship that's a Christian term, right? We're like, we're going to have some Christian fellowship, right? What does that mean? It means friendly association, especially with people who share one's interests. That's why we call it Christian fellowship, right? Because you're interested in Christ, I'm interested in Christ, so we have commonality. There's fellowship, right? It's that shared values, right? But sin, we lose fellowship with God because he's not sharing those values, of different values, so we could be in his presence and far away. This is the tragedy of humanity. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere, but our sin, our conscience, our being has been seared to the point we've lost communion with him. And so we're separate. These verses are like humanity's bumble or tinder, right? And God is not excited about that. He's not interested. He doesn't share those values. His feet are not, do not run to evil. His works are not works of iniquity. He doesn't weave the spider's web. 
He doesn't offer an egg with a viper in it. That's not God. God is good. We are separated from God, and the proof is in our lives. Listen, there's this idea. We've got to have this both and. Sin is a thing we do, right? It's false worship. It's rejecting God. It's giving over to evil, some of the things described here. But it's also a judgment. It's God handing us over. Romans 1 talks about this. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son when he goes to the father and he says, I want my inheritance, right? Basically saying, I'm rejecting you. I'm going out on my own. I'm going to make my own life out there. And the father hands it to him. Okay. Do you think the father thought that was going to go well? (laughs) Giving him over was a judgment. Okay. Go. That's what God does in our sin when we reject him. This is the way Romans 1 puts it. Claiming to be wise, we become fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images, which basically says means rejecting God, the creator, and just wanting the creation, right? Same as the prodigal son. We don't need you, Father. We'll take our inheritance, all our stuff, and we'll just go live our lives. And he goes, okay. It's a severe mercy. Listen to this. Because, therefore, it says, this is Romans, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God for images. Therefore, because we did that, God gave them up. And what was the result? He gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. You see this? See how the, he's talking about sexual sin specifically here. The sexual sin that we think, oh, that's why we get judgment. He's saying it is the judgment. You want proof that you're separated from God? Like, look at your lives. This is the judgment. The dishonoring of their bodies. Says it again. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, right, to worship him and give him the glory and thanks, he gave them up to a debased mind. So these, here's a list of sins. Again, they're judgment. They're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, <laughs> disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, Ruthless. It's judgment. More, you, let's go. A little more evidence. Depression, divorce, drugs, despair, deceit, destruction, duplicity, derangement, and dysphoria. And that's only the D's. War, famine, genocide, abortion, disease, pandemic, incompetent leaders. You feel like we have some incompetence in our leadership? And I'm going high levels, right? Don't. I'm not talking about the pastors. They're great. Okay. Yeah. The Bible says that's God's judgment. It's pretty dark. Pretty dark picture. The kids that we're making, and we're bringing them into this world, right? There's this movie. It's my second favorite movie. The road, okay. It's uh, set in the apocalyptic days, post-apocalyptic days. Everything's there's no food, there's nothing to eat. Okay, it hints at pretty dark stuff. And there's a father and a son trying to survive. And it's just this picture of darkness. And that's how, when, when we when I think about this, when I think of 
war and famine and everything. The world, I was doing some research yesterday. Like 25% of the world's countries are at war right now. It's always been the case. We have been living a dream here. Oh, we have been living a dream. Most of history is dark. And is that, is that it? Is that all we have? Is that all there is? Sin and darkness and famine and brokenness. There's this part in this movie where it's just him. It's in a book, actually. The movie was made from a book, but um, he's trying to keep his boy safe and alive in a fallen world. And this is a moment of despair. He wakes up in the morning and he looks out and he says this. He walked out in the gray light and stood and saw for a brief moment the absolute truth of the world. This is despair. What he calls the absolute truth of the world, the cold, relentless circling of the intestate earth. Let me pause there. I had to look up intestate. Some of you know what that means. If you die without writing a will, it means you died intestate. No inheritance. That's what he's saying. He looks out, and what he calls the absolute truth of the world is no hope. The absolute relentless circling of the intestate earth, no hope, no will, no inheritance. Darkness implacable. The blind dogs of the sun and their running, the crushing black vacuum of the universe. It's a fun book. My wife is like, why do you read stuff like that? I don't know. Digging into despair like that, for me, helps drive me to hope. Because I grow dull to things. Right? Just, oh, everything's fine. Just, hey, we're at the mall, everything's great. Yeah. But just take a trip into possibility, and, and many people live this. Think of these famine-stricken nations where people have to flee. Why would you pick up and go and walk with your kids without food? And hope because this is darkness implacable. We've got to go. These are people's lives in the world. Then it says this about him. And so it uses an image describing him and his son, right? So the crushing black vacuum of the universe and somewhere two hunted animals like ground foxes in their cover, borrowed time and borrowed world, and borrowed eyes with which to sorrow it. Is that it? We're just, is that life? We're we just on borrowed time that's going to come to an end in a borrowed world that leaves no inheritance. And on top of that, we have borrowed eyes with which to notice and just make it sorrow. Is that the absolute truth of the world? So yeah, it's gotten pretty dark, and we've talked about sin, and it's dark, but is that it? I'm going to tell you the absolute truth of the world. Just read verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save. That's the absolute truth of the world. Yes, there's sin. Yes, there's darkness. 
But it is not the end. It does not win. He has made an end to all my sin. God is bigger than famine. He is bigger than oppression. He is bigger than sexual impurity. He is bigger than unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and malice and envy and murder and strife and foolishness and heartlessness. Like It does not have a grip on him. His arm is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that he cannot hear. He hears. He hears. So you've got this idea that sin has separated us from God. and There's this brokenness that comes in. But God, it's the good news. He makes an end to all our sin. That is the absolute truth. So we've talked about sin. We've talked about separation. Let's talk about substitution because we need to be saved. Look at verse 9. I'm just chopping this up because there's a lot here. The last half, it says this, we hope for light. And behold, darkness, we hope for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes, right? Humanity is dull to sin in one sense, but also desiring to be saved, longing for goodness, for things to change and unable to do it. Blind, we can't do it. Remember, he says this, verse 6, their webs will not serve as clothing. So they're weaving spider's webs, and they will not serve as clothing. So let's talk about clothing. Why are you all wearing that? We're not covering our bodies. We're covering us. Think if aliens came you know, to uh, visit and examine all life on this planet, I, I think one of the key observations would be like, there's this one group of creatures that covers themselves. Why are you doing that? It's because you're trying to cover yourself. Instead, like we know. We, it's because of shame. shame it's shame so deep that we almost don't even think about it. Like if we get caught doing something shameful, then we feel ashamed. But what I'm saying is that because of sin, there's a deep, deep operating system level function in the human heart that is shame. That makes you want to cover. You know you need a covering. And God is saying, nothing you make, listen to this, the webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. You remember when Adam and Eve sinned Right? And they were separated from God, loss of fellowship, right? Now the world is subject to futility. They are broken and sentenced to death. He will now dominate and rule over her with a heavy hand. She will be unsatisfied, right? Because her desire will be for her husband. This is a nightmare. How do they solve it? A leaf. It's not going to do it. And God gives a hint about what he's going to do by providing an animal skin for them. Remember that? God's not going to do it either, but it's a hint. Yeah, you do need covered. Something needs to die. There will be a substitute. Jesus is our substitute. This idea of a scapegoat. In the Bible, a scapegoat 
is this. It was in the Old Testament. It was a goat sent into the wilderness after the Jewish chief priest had symbolically laid the sins of the people on it. So God is teaching them, you need your sins taken away. And so there's going to be a, 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 a creature that your sins are going to be laid on, and it's going to flee, and your sins will be gone. It's going to make an end to all your sins. And they're going through this ritual, right? There's this idea of the scapegoat. And we know Jesus is our scapegoat. There's a wrong way. Scapegoating has become a bad term, right? We need a scapegoat, someone to blame, (laughs) right? Here's the wrong way that we can look at scapegoating. It's when we take someone who isn't to blame, and we blame them for their wrongdoing, for our wrongdoings, mistakes, and the faults of others, especially for reasons of expediency, right? We just need someone to blame. Now, that's not good, but there's a goodness in it, and it is this. We know that we cannot bear the consequences for sin, and so we scapegoat people. It was him. You know, this is what happens when you, every time your kids have conflict, you say, hey, tell me what's going on. Guarantee someone's being accused. Right? No confessions. Their feet are not swift to confess because they're like you. They're your kids. My kids, right? Little pictures of us. We want to blame others. And here's the thing. (laughs) Can I put the good news this way? God is saying, okay, blame me. You're right. You can't bear the consequence. You're right. And so I will send my son. No one else is going to do it. Verse 16, God saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. No one else can intercede for you. Why? If you die for sin, it's your sin. If you die for sin, it's your sin. There needs to be the sinless one, Jesus, the substitute that comes. And that is where we hide. We do need saved. We can't run from God. We can't hide. Listen to this. This is an old theologian, Henry Bavink. He says this, When you wish to do something evil, you retire from the public into your house where no enemy may see you. From those places of your house which are open and visible to the eyes of men, you remove yourself into your room. Even in your room, You fear some witness from another quarter, and you retire into your heart. There you meditate, but he is more inward than your heart. Wherever, therefore, you you shall have fled, there he is. Since there is one even more inward than yourself, there is no place where you may flee from God angry, but to God reconciled. Listen to that. Since there is no place where you may flee, there is no place where you may flee from God angry, but to God reconciled. There is no place at all where you may flee. Will you flee from him? Flee unto him. I felt impelled by the Holy Spirit this week to talk to the kids. Like kids, flee to Christ. Like you are not a Christian because your parents are. And the world is calling you. And Christ is calling you. And I'm going to offend some of you Calvinists out there, but kids, you must decide. This is not just culture. You're not a Christian because your parents are. You're not a Christian because they take you to church. 
Like there was a war for your hearts and souls. And the world is calling you and Christ is calling you. And it can't, you can't just go to church. You must reckon and wrestle with God. And I am praying for you guys and my kids that he shows you the sin and then shows you his grace. And that you see there's nowhere to flee but to him. I'm not just preaching to your parents. There's a substitute. And there is security. Verse 21 and 22. No, verse 21 talks about God giving the Spirit to those who repent, right? Those who come to Him, who trust Him, who lean into Him for salvation. He gives us the Spirit. And that Spirit, there's a lot there. We, do, we have done a whole series on it. But part of what it does is the restoration of fellowship, right? God likes Jesus. <laughs> the power of the Holy Spirit flows between them, and they love one another. And it gives us the Spirit, and we're able to delight in Jesus, and that's fellowship restored. But it's also a down payment, because God promises this, right? Here's what He says. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I've put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring. He's talking about the church. Or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, those who we reach for Jesus, from this time forth forevermore. There's a promise here that God will not forsake us. And that Holy Spirit is a down payment. Ephesians 1 puts it this way. When you, Christian, heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him... You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So God, God is not intestate. There is an inheritance. He, his arm is not short. The absolute truth of the world is not darkness implacable. It's light implacable. Unstoppable light. Let me ask you this, true or false, God can do anything, true or false. Can he lie? God can't do anything, quote me. <laughs> Hebrews says this, it is impossible that God should lie. I've talked about this before, like we are secure in God's inability. I thought, we're going to write a worship song. You are unable. <laughs> Saint. People walking by like, what? No. That's what they think. They'll come in and be surprised now. <laughs> He's unable to lie. He cannot change his mind. He is constrained. And we are safe in that. We are safe. There is security in this, in God's inability to not be what he is. He will not change his mind. It's a guarantee forever. There's a lot of reasons we can't promise things, right? Part of it is we can't control everything, right? But also we can't even control ourselves. That's part of the everything. Like I can't promise you, right? We see this at weddings, right? I promise to love you forever. 50% of marriages end in divorce. What happened? People change. 
So oh, people change. Just like, that's just it. Well, that sucks. It does suck. You know what? People do change. God doesn't. He can't. He's in the cage of his goodness. And he has stuck us in there. Locked the key. What is our inheritance? Right? The Holy Spirit is a guarantee of our inheritance. What is that? Uh, there's a lot. More than I know. But <laughs> I filled out, a, I renewed a will. Because I did a will like 15 years ago. And it's been a while. I did another one. And uh, here's what's interesting. I don't have anything. <laughs> I literally don't have any money. Like, I'm not, I'm broke. I mean, you guys take care of me, but I just didn't save money when I was younger. Like, I don't have money. It's not like when I die, my kids are going to be like, oh, at least we get something that's nothing. <laughs> so well, why do I write a will? Well, I need, I, I need someone to take care of my kids. Literally, my will is passing burdens on to someone else. I don't have any blessings. Yeah, yeah, here's stuff. Take care of it for me. <laughs> That's all I've got. No blessings, just burdens. I mean, you guys are a blessing, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Who will take care of my kids if my wife and I die? That's literally it. God's will is the complete opposite. No burden, only blessings. He doesn't need anything from us. But what is the blessing? To be naked. There's a song, um, Rock of Ages, or was it Cornerstone? Oh, Cornerstone. Faultless to stand before the throne. What does that mean? It means blameless. It means that sin is made an end of, and we are glorified. We are made partakers in the divine nature. Peter says that we are, we are partakers in the divine nature. That means to become god Lee, like God. John says we will be like him because we will see him as he is. We, th this need to be covered, that feeling of nakedness, of bareness will be gone. Like that fear, the shame, the hiddenness, the hesitation. Like we will be bold. Picture that. We, we are not bold before men, but to be, be before the throne of God. Naked, unashamed, unashamed. I think that's, <laughs> I don't know that, I, that's the biggest blessing I can think of. You mean give me a new heavens and a new earth and all this stuff? Like, who cares? We've already got the stuff. And yet, we walk around hindered. And we will be free. Because when Christ comes, we will see him as he is, and that revelation will shatter sin and shatter shame. It'll, it'll be evacuated from our mind and heart and souls, and we will stand naked. Do you want to be naked? This is really helpful or really confusing. I don't know. It's not, <laughs> I find it helpful. So... 
Let's dream about that. That's all I have. Um, yeah, let me invite the response team up. If you believe that God has uh, given you a message, a word, wisdom, knowledge, or prophecy for this church, I ask that you share that with Glenn. If you are in Cedar Falls, you can share that with the MC. Um, we need to hear from him. <laughs> and Lord willing, this has all been part of that. God, we do long to hear your freeing words. And we're going to sing, this is fellowship, this is adoring Jesus, right? This is shared interest. The Father adores the Son, the Son adores the Father. This is fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Shared values. We're going to celebrate Christ together. We've been given the Spirit and restored to fellowship. And we're going to take communion. Communion is the time to remember the substitute. That Jesus came. There's all, yeah. God came in the flesh, right? And he saw that there was no one to intercede. And so his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He came, did what we could not do, and gave his life for us. And communion is when we remember that. So if you have a communion cup, if you don't, they're available by the door, or there'll be someone walking around with them. This is where we go and remember. Um, by the way, I'd put, I'm putting out a th three-part video series uh, on YouTube on communion. People have asked me, what do we believe? What do we... Um, there's a little... It'll be about 15 minutes worth of teaching on that, if you're curious. But generally, we believe that we are remembering. That's what we're doing. Christ died. He gave himself by grace through faith, by the power of the Spirit. When we remember that, that is good for our souls. And so we take and we eat. Jesus, teaching us to do that, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this bread is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Come to him and we remember and we rejoice. So let me pray. God, thank you for your salvation. And... Uh, Pray that we would rejoice and fellowship with you over it. Amen.